John, we have MVP races out of nowhere. What do you think about it? Well, then Ashley can obviously go either way. Two very, very deserving candidates and almost equally deserving at this point. And, and the American League is, is a case at this point, which nobody thought it would, would be. Yeah, well, we're going to end up talking about Acuna and Betts. We're going to end up talking about Seager and Otani. We're going to end up talking about managers on the hot seat, including the two in New York, perhaps. And we're going to talk to a manager who certainly isn't on the hot seat. He's on the way to October. That's Brandon Hyde of the Baltimore Orioles. If you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. John, I think if we did this show at the midseason or maybe even August 1st, it felt a little bit like two runaways for the MVP. I, 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 certainly in the American League, no one thought that anyone would overtake Shohei Otani. And in the National League, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. was kind of the clear favorite most of the year. And with a couple of weeks left in the season, I think that's become cloudier because of uh, Mookie Betts and Corey Seager. Why, why don't we start in the National League? That's the one that's gotten actually the most conversation. Where, where do you think things stand right now? To me, uh, it's a coin flip. I've gone back and forth. So, you know, I, I, I was with Acuna, as everybody was. Then Betts' stats were better a month ago, and I wrote Betts should be the MVP. At this moment, if I have a vote and I don't, uh, I would probably have to go with Acuna just on the narrative that, uh, you know, they've the Braves have been a little bit better than the Dodgers. The Dodgers have been great, too, but uh, they ran away with it. He was in, fantastic when they were clinching it, which was early in my mind, forgetting the math to it. Um, you know, they scored so many runs in that first inning, the most in two decades, and he's the main reason for that. Statistically, that's a dead heat. The case can be made for Betts, though. I mean, he plays shortstop occasionally and second base. So, uh, you know, certainly if somebody wants to tell me it's Betts, I'm fine with it. But if I had a pick right now, I'm going back to Acuna. You know, John, I, I, I'm with you. I think it's a flip of the coin. And you you mentioned one of the things, and I thought there'd be a greater separation here. You know, Acuna feels like the jet engine of a team that dominates the first inning. So I went and looked at the stats. So, the Braves lead the major leagues in first inning runs at 136. The Dodgers are second at 112. Do you know that Betts actually has better statistics in the first inning than Acuna? And by the way, Acuna has great stats in the first inning. He's got a, he's got 1,048 OPS. Betts has 1,121. Uh, but that's everything. We're splitting hairs. We're trying to find reasons to split hairs. It feels to be tough that somebody who would have like a 40 homer, 70 steal season for the best team in a league wouldn't win the MVP. I think he's the guy. And yet you hit on the what what really moves me, John. I, I think both of us are a quote unquote old fashioned voters who think about value. And one of the Dodger problems this year was in the middle infield. They they lost lost Gavin Lux in spring training. He was going to play shortstop. 
it muddled their situation. And Betts' ability to go and play shortstop competently and second base above average, and not just a few innings. Like, there's a lot of starts in there. He's played about almost half his games there, and he's the best right fielder in the sport. It's, it's a, it is a coin flip for me. I, I think I'm with you right now uh, that Acuna is the leader, but it is by hairs, not by a lot. I mean, Betts is amazing. Uh, to be able to play shortstop when you're a great right fielder, incredible. Uh, the stats are basically equal. I think it might just be that historical thing, the nod to it, even though he might not get to 40, 70. It's going to you know, take a great final 10 days to get there, but he might. Uh, Pretty close to see the way, yeah. First at 30, 60, uh, you know, maybe he gets to 30, 70. I, I think that historical thing probably gives him the nod, but, I mean, Betts was amazing as well. And look, we're leaving out Freeman and Olsen, who in normal year, they'd be the MVP. Bellinger's been spectacular. He's fifth at this point, obviously. He's already a pencil in for fifth. But, uh, you know, I mean, Olsen's got over 50 home runs, franchise record, incredible. And Freeman is probably the best pure hitter in the game and amazing and great defensively on the bases and everything else. But it's a two-man race and uh, two guys certainly deserving You'd like to see a tie, but it doesn't work that way. You vote. If it comes out a tie, like it did that one year with Keith Hernandez and Willie Stargell, of course, that's 44 years ago now. Uh, great. But uh, I'm going to say that Acuna probably gets it due to the uh, potential of the 40-70 and already the 30-60. John, you, you said a tie. You know, uh, in our sport, we always say tie goes to the runner. These guys are such great runners. I don't know who to give it to. I guess the guy with the most stolen bases. And I don't want to gloss over it because I agree with you. Three and four in some fashion are going to be Freeman and Olsen in this. They essentially were traded for each other. Think about Atlanta as an organization, right? Atlanta as an organization decides, you know, it was messy. Freeman moves on to the Dodgers. They make the trade for Olsen. And I mean, I would rather have Freddie Freeman and the prospects that they traded. And yet they got Olsen. He set the team home run record. He eclipsed Andrew Jones. And let's talk about what a great organization the Dodgers is. You mentioned Cody Bellinger would finish fifth right now. He they they non-tendered him at, at the end of last season. By the way, let's move to the AL MVP race. The worst Corey Seager is going to finish is second. They let him leave in free agency. We're talking about machines and the Braves and the Dodgers able to lose great players and keep going. It's our transition to the AL MVP, which, again, I think a month ago we would have said, come on, Otani is going to win the MVP by getting hurt, by Seager coming back from his second IL stint and playing at such a high level for a contender as opposed to the Angels falling out of it, has the door opened where Seager may be able to nudge him out? Yeah, Seager's been incredible. A fine shortstop, but uh, been arguably the best hitter in the league. Uh, incredible. Uh, batting average close to 340. Home runs over 30. OPS well over 1,000. Um, I mean, you could see how the other teams fear him. We saw Buck Showalter pick, uh, put him on base uh, and pitch too low. Uh, I mean, Seager is great. He's amazing. And, um, you know, I'm still not sure the door is open. I do think Otani's going to get it. I was always one of those guys that how you affect the playoff race makes a difference to me. It is called most valuable. Seager's team is in the playoff hunt. 
probably will get a spot, whether they do or not. They are in the playoff hunt. Certainly that is points for him. He may get some votes. It may not be unanimous, but I still think it's going to be Otani just because, again, this is historic, even beyond the Acuna historic. And I know he did it before, but it's still him. It's still amazing. And I, I know that both guys have missed a lot of time. So I'm not counting against Otani that he's going to miss the final month or so. Um, you know, the fact that he is one of the better pitchers in the league and still leads in OPS and slugging uh, home runs in the American League. Um, still going to say that it's probably Otani and I think he'll win, but uh, may not be unanimous. I'll say that. Yeah, you know, even missing the last month, Otani is going to end up with, if Seager even plays out here, about 50 or 60 more plate appearances than Seager because of the two IL stints uh, for Seager this year. What I don't want to forget is two things here. No, number one, the Angels are not in the playoff race, but probably the most important decision any team made was the Angels at the trade deadline. And they were in the race and they were in the race because of Otani. Uh, and they decided not to trade Otani, which I think they'll probably regret forever uh, and not get something back. So there was that. The other thing was on September 1st, we would have had a discussion. Forget about AL MVP. Is Shohei Otani having the greatest season any baseball player has ever had? I don't want to just forget that because he got hurt. He disappeared. He's not talking to reporters, any of that kind of stuff. You know, we're still talking 44 homers. I think he's got 20 steals. He's among the leaders in triples. Oh, by the way, he threw 132 innings at a very high level this year as a pitcher. I think it's him. But to your point, Seager has, is going to make people, especially, you, you know, recency bias matters and narrative matters. These things do come up for human beings who vote. And the Rangers are in a race both to get in the playoffs and to win the AL West. And if Seager has a mighty last two weeks here where he helps the Rangers close it out, and especially if they win the division, get the number two seed, avoid that first playoff round, I think that would help Seager a great deal in this. Yeah, I mean, I, there are still people who count most valuable as playing on a playoff team and helping your team into the playoffs. And, um, you know, there's a narrative does exist. And uh, but, you know, I've always been. Uh, one who espouses that and thinks that's important. And I'm still sort of with Otani here. So if I'm with Otani, I'm just reading. I'm not in the room. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm reading the room. I feel like if I'm with Otani at this point and it, it's close, um, I got to figure that the vast majority of the voters, the younger people, just go on the stats and the history. It, it is a historic season, even if he's missed the final 25, 30 games, whatever it's going to be. Um, it's historic to see somebody pitch like that, be one of the top five or six pitchers in the league, be one of the top two hitters in the league now because Seager's right there with him. Um, I think it's historic enough that he's going to get it. And, um, you know, but give Seager credit. Another year, it's an MVP season. Yeah. Uh, you know, Otani's manager, Phil Nevin, is probably one of those guys uh, who we're going to talk a lot about in the next few weeks. Is he going to survive here? I know you and I, we wanted to kind of talk about managers on the hot seat. John, before we go to the West Coast, I think we're going to have to at least ask the question off of disappointing years with the number one and two salaries in the sport, whether Buck Showalter 
and Aaron Boone get over the mountain. Uh, you know, they're both signed through at least next season. The Mets are a more interesting one. I think we believe that Brian Cashman will be back next year, but we know for sure now David Stearns is going to be the head of baseball operations. I think if you ask me what is the 180 degree opposite of David Stearns, I might say Buck Showalter. So uh, let's let's talk about our, our the two guys in our location before we take this national, uh, because it is an interesting national thing. What, what, what do you think? Do you think that both of these guys are managing in New York in 2024? Yeah, I mean, I think Buck is probably the more interesting uh, debate right now. Um, I do think that Boone, you know, probably like more likely than not to survive. That's not quite as strong as likely to survive. I think he'll make it. Um, you know, Hal Steinbrenner loves him. It's up to Hal, you hear. Obviously, Cashman is in Boone's corner. I do think, you know, both teams certainly. And I'm normally of the opinion that if you have a disastrous season, you should just change the manager. It's not fair. That's the the job is tough and that's the way it goes. You don't want to come back to spring training with that narrative. So there are many jobs around the league that I would change where people are not being changed, I think. But in this case, you know, I think that Boone probably has the love of his bosses. And for that reason, uh, and you know, they'll, they're going to have a winning record at least. So, I mean, it is a disaster by Yankee standards. I think he probably survives, uh, I think Buck's an interesting question, and uh, I kind of go back and forth on this. You know, I think it's a difficult situation for him. He was manager of the year fourth time last year. He is an excellent manager. He does know New York and the lay of the land. I don't personally think he's done anything wrong. I don't think he deserves to be fired, but you combine the fact they have the, the biggest payroll, and again, I just think they underperformed. I didn't see anything that he did wrong. The, the, with, the, with the season that they've had, and they, they've kept playing. So give them credit for that. They have kept playing, and they're trying hard. I'm down here in Miami, and they played last night and beat a playoff contender in the Marlins. So, like I, don't, like I said, I don't think he deserves it, but I do think the combination of the year that he had and the fact that they have a new boss coming in who should have that decision, I believe will have that decision in David Stearns, I think he, his situation is tenuous. I, I wouldn't be opposed to just bringing him back as a lame duck. It's not always the greatest thing to have someone as a lame duck, but you know, David Stearns is just getting here. He'll see how he does. And then you'll see, and maybe you give, I think council's probably going to take a year off, right? So maybe you'll have a chance to think about council if he decides to manage it. Maybe he wants to come to New York, but doesn't feel like Buck has done anything to deserve to be fired. Normally, as I said, disastrous season, I'm in favor of the firing. I'm kind of, I'm kind of going with I think they should keep him, but uh, it's it's a tough question, and uh, I think it could go either way at this point. Look, one of the guys who I think we both think has a very small chance of coming back next year is uh, Bob Melvin in San Diego. And uh, the one thing I'll give credit for, at least to date so far for the two New York managers, we're getting a lot of reporting out of San Diego about what a toxic situation exists there, you know, AJ Preller and Melvin, their clubhouse, etc. You know, the two New York managers have held these teams together, kept them playing hard to the end. The Yankees might actually even finish over 500 again. I know that's small potatoes to their fan base, which is kind of generally championship and bust. I think I'm with you. The owner of the Yankees likes the manager a great deal. I think the only way that Buck survives, John, is if 
in conversations between David Stearns and Steve Cohn to to settle this job for him to become president of baseball operations, Steve Cohn said in some way, look, you've got a lot of work to do here. Uh, This guy is signed for one more year. He doesn't know how to manage a major league team. He does know how to do New York. Why don't we see this? And if it all goes great, you get a year to watch him, see if you get along with him. And if it goes poorly, there's an obvious fall guy here. And you get your guy starting for 2025. Because, again, I just don't see the – I obviously know Buck Walter a lot, lot better than I know David Stern. But what I know of David Stern, it doesn't feel like that would be the marriage that I would say is really, like, fits seamlessly uh, together. So I wonder about them. I mentioned Melvin. Obviously, uh, Tito Francona is going to retire at the end of the season. Cleveland's going to be open. Uh, I think that the Milwaukee job is going to be open, to your point, because Craig Council is either going to take a year off. You know, his children are too high school, too college. He wants to see them uh, play ball a little more and grow a little more. Uh, So I think that job is going to be open. Whether Does Council close a job someplace else or not? Where, where L.A. I mentioned, San Diego I mentioned. Where else do you think there's there's a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think you you covered the possibilities. I think St. Louis, they've said that they're going to keep Marmol, right? Um, so obviously they did not have a good year. Um, Washington they, said they'll keep Davey Martinez. Right, right? he's already like, got an extension. Right, so Lovello got extended. And White Sox, uh, the White Sox grew full. Obviously it was a disastrous first year in Chicago, but – they hired from within for the GM. He certainly was part of the hiring process for the manager. It's going to be tough for him to fire the manager. So White Sox looks like Rafal will stay. St. Louis stay. Uh, Nevin is a question. I mean, I think he was kind of held over because they were selling the team and they didn't want any disruption. And then, then we'll see what the new owner is going to do. I don't think this is his fault. He didn't do anything wrong. I do think they like him. So I wouldn't rule out that he's staying, but he's certainly in jeopardy. Melvin, I think the owner loves him, but I do think there's something going on there. And he's a great manager. I mean, he's been a terrific manager everywhere he's been. In fact, I thought the Mets should hire him when they hired Collins. Not that Collins didn't work out. And uh, he, the Mets tried to get him uh, be- before they ended up with the Showalter, right? He wanted to stay on the West Coast, stay in Arizona for spring training. But something went wrong there in San Diego. They lost all those one-run games historically, all those extra inning games historically. Something's wrong in that clubhouse. Now, he may have had a tougher assignment. I don't think New York superstars are get-along guys, right? I mean, you've got uh, Lindor, Alonzo, Judge, Rizzo, uh, all great in the clubhouse. San Diego, there's something going on in that mix that's not working. And we've seen the stories come out now. There's certainly some egos going on there. You hear that uh, Machado and Tatis do not get along. That's a bad formula. Now, is that Melvin's fault? I would say probably not, but, uh, you know, oftentimes the manager takes the hit for something like that. And, you know, may, he'll be, he's a guy who's going to be able to get another job anyway. So may, maybe that just wasn't the right spot for him for whatever reason. You know, uh, the one thing I, I would add is Bud Black did an extension, I believe, in spring training. He kind of does these one-year extensions. I do wonder about his ties to Cleveland and if he ends up being, gets out of the Colorado thing and ends up being Francona's a replacement in uh, Cleveland. Just, just, just a thought there. All right. Uh, you know, I hadn't thought of that. We'll see. I mean, Colorado obviously is a team that doesn't change managers very often. So 
change uh, anything probably, very often, change including much. losing. So I, I think he's probably just staying in Colorado. But uh, and Cleveland will come up with somebody good, as they always do. Who thought, whoever thought that Francona was going to go to Cleveland? Nobody, right? And they've won more games than probably anybody other than the Yankees, the Astros, and the Dodgers. <laughs> maybe one or two other Braves, maybe one or two other teams in that Bra- time. Braves, so, Braves, Rays. Yeah, they're in that yeah, group there. Fantastic job uh, by them. And I'm sure they'll get somebody good, somebody young. And I would predict somebody we we haven't even thought about. Yeah. Well, on the subject of fantastic managing jobs, uh, Brandon Hyde finished second for AL uh, Manager of the Year last year. My strong suspicion is he'll finish first this year. But before he does that, he'll be joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. John and I are really appreciate Brandon Hyde, uh, the manager of the Baltimore Orioles, joining us. Brandon, uh, in his fifth season as the manager of the Orioles, and for the first time since 2016, we already know the Orioles are in the playoffs. Uh, so congratulations on that, especially from where the team had been earlier in your tenure. And I wonder if that's a place to start with this. You know, people have... Are, are you a year early? You obviously had begun to make turnarounds last year. Wh- where do you think this team is at on on what clearly seems like a positive arc for years? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's five years, you know, and, and the team wasn't very good in eighteen either. And that's we weren't here at that time. I was in Chicago at that time, but you know, that's when they had a bunch of talented players that they started trading off. And you know, we got here in nineteen, and uh, the team was. It was an unusual team. I mean, especially in the division, especially the way the AL East was, um, that, you know, that season, uh, it was just a tough team to compete with. And the guys did our best. We played our hardest, just had was, didn't have the talent to honestly, or the pitching to compete in that divi- in the division. And, and 2020 was a weird year, obviously, in a lot of ways. And then 21, it was just, uh, we, we just weren't ready still. I mean, there, we just, we couldn't pitch. We, we, we couldn't pitch to the teams in our division. And, and uh, last year we took a huge step forward. Um, what we, you know, what we hit on was a lot of waiver wire bullpen arms that were able to to pitch in the division. Batista came out of nowhere. Um, you know, he was in our minor leagues, but we didn't know if he was going to throw a strike. And but we hit on guys like honestly Jorge Lopez, who made the All Star team. Um, you know, Brian Baker, uh, CNL Perez. Uh, these guys that were already that, that were waiver wire claims were able to pitch to the back end of games. And then you bring Rutschman, and obviously that's a huge difference maker there. He's, a, he's going to be a great player in this league for a long time. With the maturity of some guys that had been there, but gone through some some really lean years, but were talented players, and Cedric Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle, Santander, uh, Hayes. So these type of guys that were were that had kind of wore the the really tough nights um, for a few years, were able to start having some success, team success and feeding off it and coming to the park now trying, you know, thinking they're going to win games. So a lot happened. Um, you know, I'm really proud of our team. We lost 110 games two years ago. Um, and to have this, to this kind of turnaround, I think, is incredibly unique and incredibly special. And I think maybe we are a little quicker than, than people thought. You mentioned it, 110 losses and congratulations. What a fantastic year to win the best division. I mean, most of us are shocked. We still didn't see this year coming. You guys were over 500 last year. You played your hearts out after the trade deadline, even though it traded the closer, kept going. But you go from 83 wins to this. Are you a little bit shocked? 
I don't know if I'm shocked. I was. I, I said this in the media the other day. We won 83 games last year. We were at this time last year. We were still fighting for a wild card, so we were playing meaningful games in September last year with a lot of the similar, you know, some of the same guys as well as some you know young starters and Kyle Bradish, Dean Kramer, these guys that were in the rotation the last year. Am I surprised? I, I was. I felt like our we our team was a little disrespected, honestly, going into this year. I thought people thought that, and I knew people thought that. We were going to regress. I thought that, you know, all the analytical smart people thought that we were going to go back, take a step back and win 70 something games. That was the projection or prediction or whatever. I didn't read a publication. I didn't read any article where we were going to finish in the top three at all. It was all fourth or fifth. So I wanted our guys to feel, Hey, the people didn't believe what you did last year. And, and um, I think they took that to heart and just kept going. And so we are, we are, we're here where we're here and right now. I mean, I think it's a good, really good club. And I thought it was a good club at the end of the year last year. You know, you brought up this name a little earlier when you were talking about what went right last year, and it was Felix Batista. And clearly, going into the playoffs, a month ago, we would have said, you know what, one of the strengths of the Orioles will be in the playoffs is Cano and Batista for the last six outs. Uh, I know Batista threw uh, the ball about 20, 25 times the other day. He's not yet going for surgery for a tear in his UCL. Can you update us where he is and what's your expectation if you'll actually have your closer in October? Yeah, I don't I don't want to go in with any expectations because I have no idea how he's going to continue to progress and we're, and we're, we're running out of time a little bit. Um, but he did throw off the mound for the first time two days ago. He's going to throw off the mound again tomorrow, I think. We're just seeing how he responds and recovers from it obviously i'm keeping my fingers crossed that he might we might get felix batista back but i i don't want to i don't want to put all of our eggs in that basket because i don't know if it's going to happen or not and is it realistic i'm not really sure honestly it's for me it'd be an amazing story and i love the guy the guy's the, the greatest person on the planet um and he's a team guy and everybody loves him so you want him you want him to be with us but i just don't know if it's going to happen or not Brandon, you, you mentioned that all the smart analytical guys didn't have you in the top three. Even us dumb old guys didn't have you in the top three either. So uh, it was nice to leave me out of that, but uh, we didn't think so either. Uh, I want to ask you about that rotation. That was my question going in. I knew you added Gibson, which was a nice plus solid guy who's going to certainly help the other guys and, and pitch decently for you guys. But at this point, at least from a distance, it looks like Bradish and Rodriguez have been your top two guys and you've got, Kramer as well, who's been pretty good. Flaherty has not pitched like he did in St. Louis. He's been up and down a little bit. Where do you stand in terms of your confidence in the rotation going in, and and how do you set up? I mean, it looks to me like Bradish and, and Rodriguez are the top two, but you you certainly know better than I do, as I predicted you for, I can't remember if it was fourth or fifth. <laughs> Sorry. Everybody else did too. That's okay. Okay. Don't, don't, don't take offense. Um no, uh, Bradish and Bradish and and Grayson have the best stuff from a, just a stuff standpoint, and they're both Grayson's rookie year, Bradish's second year. So uh, we're really excited about both those guys going forward. And the the corner that that Grayson's took, you know, taken since he's come back up, has been a, he's been he's pitched like a top end starter. Bradish has pitched like a top end starter all year. So um, I think we feel really comfortable, honestly, with with the stuff that we're throwing out in the postseason with those two guys. Dean Kramer's had a really nice year. If you put the body of work together, um, I think it's 13, 14 wins, but it's it's 150 innings. It's keeping us in the game almost every time out. I like the four-pitch mix. I think he's, he's improving. He's learning how to pitch. 
thought he threw really well against Tampa just a couple days ago. So um, I, I feel good about Dean Gibby is like kind of that veteran he's pitching tonight. Uh, he's kind of that veteran presence where he's got a ton of wins for us, pitched deep in the games a lot of times. Kind of was that our Jordan Lyles from last year where pick pick up the pieces a little bit, pick up innings where where we thought we needed. So I'm I've been excited about Gibby too. I love he's such an ultimate team guy. So. Uh, I feel good about it. You know, Jack hasn't pitched as well as, we, you know, he had hoped when he got here. He pitched great the first game in, in Toronto. But, you know, in postseason, you can do a lot of different things. You can put guys in the bullpen. You, you, it's either shortened series. So you can be a little bit creative. So um, we'll see where we finish. I think that's going to be a big thing, too, whether it's wild card or, or win the division. Then you can rest guys. But hopefully we can rest guys. You know, just to put a finer point, you mentioned Grayson Rodriguez since he returned from the minor leagues. 11 starts, 259 ERA. He's pitched like the AC was projected to be as one of the top prospects. It's a reminder of how much you have gotten from your farm system. You mentioned the tent pole last year when Rutschman came up, Gunnar Henderson. One of the people, we we had Matt Holiday on our show a few weeks ago, and we were talking about his son, Jackson. And Mike Elias, your, your boss, had left it open that maybe he could make it all the way at age 19. <laughs> Obviously, he's probably the best prospect in the sport. Take us through the decision, how tough it was, what went into it to decide, hey, we brought up a lot of guys. Let's wait with him. I, I think that it was, well, one, have you ever seen a kid get be 19 and go all through every step in the minor leagues in the into the big leagues his first full season? I've never seen it. I've never seen a kid get the AAA in this situation. So to do what he's done is amazing. And he's incredibly talented. And I loved, you know, we spent a lot of time together in spring training. I didn't send him out. We didn't send him out to about four or five days before we broke just because, you know, this is his first major league camp out of high school, just because I liked watching him play the last three or four innings of every single game. I, you know, I told Mike, Hey, I'll get this guy at bats. Let him, you know, let him uh, take round balls with our major league guys as long as we can, because I think the experience he's getting up here is going to be invaluable. And also he, he, he can handle it. Um, the bloodlines are there. They're real. Uh, he's not overwhelmed by anything. So we, we you know, he, he's been in discussions all year about a lot of things, but I don't, you know, I don't know if it was realistic to bring him up. We're, we got a really pretty talented infield group also. So, yeah. you, right. So, so Jordan Westberg and Ramon Urias, and Adam Frazier and Jorge Mateo, these guys have done a great job all year, been really consistent for us. So right now we're, we're going with, with the guys that we have, the guys that got us here. And, but I'm really excited about Jackson moving forward. You had a very exciting uh, victory uh, and then celebration uh, in your Tampa series. Um, extra innings, Rutschman with a home run and tying the game a couple of times. Uh, I want to ask you, wh wh why did you decide to have O'Hearn bunt and why did you think that he could do a sacrifice bunt? Uh, and he did successfully. Just because, um, well, a few things. One is I do believe in the bunt when in certain situations i do believe in the in the bunt to take to tie or take the lead put pressure on defense make them play the infield in maybe put them in positions if things line up behind that hitter and there's a lot of scenarios but in this type of scenario ryan o'hearn has not faced many left-handed pitchers this year and i had mountcastle to kind of platoon in that situation or usually i would hit for for oh i went against the lefty now also they're bringing in jake deekman that's not that's not an easy left on left guy to hit and so just kind of where where we were in the lineup i felt like we needed to get this runner to third base in any way possible put the pressure on tampa make them play the infield in make them play the outfield obviously extremely shallow uh it's not an easy left on left mass up for a so i just went to him when the when the inning 
when we got off the field and I just said to him, I got a tough assignment for you. They're bringing in Diekman. Can you lay down a bunt? And he said, I haven't bunted in five years. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, well, I thought about it for a second. And I said, he goes, but I'll do it and I'll get it down. I said, well, let's just, let's take a look at it on the first pitch. And honestly, if it looked like a kid, the guy that hadn't ever bunted before, I was going to take it off <laughs> and try to just have him see if he can make contact. But first pitch slider, he got, he put his nose down right in it and, and got the bunt down to, to allow us to get a sack fly. So it shows you the team player. He's, then he goes and gets five hits last night. So uh, he's a good player. Yeah. You know, it's, it speaks to a little bit of the magic of your season, finding a guy, O'Hearn had been a journeyman, uh, had a, a spectacular year, which brings us to someone else on your roster who John and I know well, which is Aaron Hicks, uh, who essentially got booed out of New York. Uh, he's released uh, May 26th. You guys sign him the 30th. Uh, he plays his first game on the 31st. And I always think, Brandon, value is about timeliness. He shows up in a moment where Cedric Mullins on your IL and he helps you bridge that period. And I'll say this. I know he's had two IL stints. He has an 838 OPS for you since May 31st when he joined you. Would you like the list of Yankees who have over an 838 OPS since May 31st? It's Aaron Judge, end of list. So Aaron Hicks has helped done everyone from the team that released them. Why is Aaron Hicks work for the Baltimore Orioles when it didn't work this season in New York? Well, think about how lucky we got. I mean, you have to catch breaks along the way, right? <clears throat> the night that Cedric gets hurt, they DFA Hicks. So that night we were going through some options of what we can do. Um, how are we going to cover center field? How, what are we going to do with our outfield? Well, at that time also, one of our top prospects in the minor leagues outfield, Colton Kowser, was hurt. So right now we have a major hole, and we don't know how long Ced's going to be out. Well, I'd obviously seen Hicksy play for – the last four years um, in New York. And I, I knew very well of the positives and negatives that were coming out of that whole situation. I thought that we needed to take a chance. And so, and I think Mike did too, on a talented guy that's played center field in the past. I know the defensive metric numbers weren't good. I know the struggles over there, but I also felt like what it's not going to, what's, what's the hurt of bringing in a talented guy that's, that could switch hit maybe play three outfield spots, maybe help us out for a little bit and take a flyer on him. Well, we did. And he's got an 830 OPS and played great defense for us. So he, he covered us up. He, I mean, he played really well and said was out center field too. Um, so not only did he bring in the offense, he brought the defense for us. He's still one of the top throwers in the game. And I loved his attitude. I mean, he has brought, he's come in with the – we've talked a lot. We talk a lot about the New York stuff. He's from Long Beach. I went to Long Beach State. We have a little bit of a connection there kind of early. We kind of know a lot of the similar people down in the area. So I think that kind of helped maybe from a comfort level. I also wanted him to feel as welcomed as possible, knowing that I need that to get the most out of him. I need to really make him feel good. And so that was kind of my goal to try to communicate as much as possible about playing time, when he's going to play, when he's not. Um, how do you feel today? Well, you know, whatever I could do to get the best out of Aaron Hicks. And uh, I heard you guys do the same thing playing great baseball for us since. So uh, we caught a break with, with, with getting them. I'm glad you mentioned Long Beach State. Uh, we, maybe this should have been the first question, but, you know, uh, some people don't know that much about you, and I think it's an interesting uh, case. I mean, certainly uh, you get the most credit for perseverance, a minor league player, minor league coach, manager, all that, all the way up through, and certainly did uh, major league uh, coaching uh, with the Marlins and the Cubs. 
you know, uh, and of course you were, you started as a dirt bag, which I like to say dirt bag. Uh, so good job there. What do you owe your success to? I know that you coached under McKeon, uh, coached under Madden, Renteria, Dave Snow back as the dirt bag. Uh, like I say, I like saying it. Uh, how'd you get here? Well, I've just been extremely fortunate. Honestly, I played for played for amazing people. You mentioned one of them, Dave Snow, and at Long Beach, Mike Weathers, Dave Snow. Just saw them, had breakfast with them, and in, in uh, Orange County uh, a couple weeks ago, we played the Angels. Really close with a lot of people down in Southern California. I'm from Northern California. I played for an incredible high school baseball coach. My dad was a coach, so I kind of grew up around really good coaches, <laughs> around really good people. And then when I got into pro ball, I was I was been very fortunate that I I people have supported me, promoted me, um, maybe put me in positions where I didn't know, maybe they pushed me a little bit, honestly. Um, but I've done a little bit of everything. I managed the minor leagues. I, I roved. I was a farm director with Theo and with Chicago. Uh, then I won the major league staff there after being on the major league staff in Miami and was a bench coach for Jack McKeon and Ricky and uh, Edwin Rodriguez. So I've done a little bit of, a little bit of everything and been surrounded by amazing, amazing people. And, I'm still surrounded by amazing people and I'm still being challenged and I just try to do the best job I can. I try to listen as much as I possibly can for me. That's the art that, that, that isn't followed in today's world as much, but I still take I still ask people for advice or how to do things. I just asked Joe Madden a couple of weeks ago about a situation and what he would have done. Um, so I'm very tight with Joe. Joe has been incredibly supportive of me and a huge Im- impact and, and um, somebody I look up to, a lot. Um, but I've been a bench coach for four managers and they're all way different. And I think that's been beneficial for me too on how I go about my business. Brandon, I'd love to follow up on that by asking, you know, oftentimes when there's a level of uh, rebuild like you had, you know, you, you didn't gloss over it. There were a hundred lost seasons where you were not a competitive team in a very, very tough division with real heavyweights at the top of it. The guy who kind of helps nurse through that doesn't always get over the mountain and stick as the manager of the team. Can you take us through when you're losing like that? What keeps your belief system going in both that it will get better for the Baltimore Orioles and also that you'll be part of it when it gets better? It's hard. That's There's a lot of really tough nights. There's no doubt about it. And um, it's still hard. This is a hard job. It's, this is a hard thing to do. It's hard to talk as much as we do. It's hard. It's not easy to lose. And it's relief when you win. So there's not a whole lot of... There's not a whole lot of laughter and gratification goes on because you're more relieved than anything when you win games. How you get through it is you have a supportive family. You have coaches that help keep you as consistent as possible. You try to stay as as positive as possible. But my, you know, a lot of people help me through, get me through tough, tough times. And um, it's not, you can't do it yourself. You also have to have a really supportive front office that is extremely realistic in the talent level that you're putting out there compared to others. And that are seeing that you are just doing the best you can with what you have and you're keeping your players and coaches motivated and you're trying anything you can to get them better. And I think that's what Mike, I give Mike a lot of credit. Mike was way more patient than I was during a lot of, you know, especially when we were losing games late, that was the, that was the killer. When we lose games late on a bad team, I felt terrible for the guys in the clubhouse because they had just busted their butt for seven or eight innings and deserved to win a game. And we didn't have the firepower on the mound to be able to close it out. That, that hurt the most for our guys. And so 
Mike was amazing when you come into my office after the game and not ask ever, ever ask me why I did something or did you think about this? He never would do that. He would say, you did everything you could. What are you going to do? That team's got a $280 million payroll. Those are all-stars for a reason. We're going to, we're going to get there someday. So that for keeping that in perspective, that was huge for me. I mean, you guys have a lot of great young players, a great future. The the feels like the Braves and the Dodgers are getting more publicity nationally. Of course, we were completely wrong to begin with about your team. Uh, is it imperative you win this division? You've got a couple game lead now as we do this, and I think you have the tiebreaker as well. And do you feel confident that uh, with this young pitching staff that you you guys can pull this off in terms of well, the World I, Series? I still think we have a really tough schedule. We'll play two more at Houston. This you know the game we played last night. You know is pretty epic. Um, it's a, obviously a playoff team over there. We go to Cleveland, which we never score very many runs against Cleveland. They can really pitch. They have Jose Ramirez. I think it's going to, that's going to be all, you know, Tito's uh, uh, idol of mine and uh, somebody I look up to very much. And so they're very, very hard to beat. And we have Boston. We play the nationals and the nationals are, you know, Davey's one of my good friends. That, that's a young team playing their butts off with nothing to lose. I think our, we have, it's still a tough schedule along the way. And then I don't think Tampa's going to lose many games. I just <laughs> the pitching is too good. That's just a, such a good team over there that we have to play well to really win this division. It's it's it is important because of the days off, the days off postseason you know, after the season's over. So hopefully we can continue to play well the rest of the way and and hold off Tampa. Yeah, you know I don't want to bury the lead, Brandon. Uh, I believe you turned fifty on October third, which is the day the playoffs begin, uh, and you get to avoid. Uh, and just celebrate your birthday. That would be a good gift, right? If you hold on to the number one seed uh, and you're home uh, and not playing baseball on your your birthday. So I'll, I'll ask a question because you, you mentioned like Joe Madden uh, all along the way. The Cubs were a team in su- to some degree put together like your current group. It went through a lot of losing, brought up incredibly talented young position players and won a championship quickly. The question that will be asked about you going into the postseason, can a team this young do this? I thought it was very encouraging that the day after you clinched where you could have kind of laid down, you have this stirring comeback against Houston. I think it probably says something about the maturity of your team. Is your team too young to win or are you the Cubs and can go right through this because it's so talented? I think we're talented. I honestly do. I mean, we, we did what we did two nights ago, and then we were going to face Berlander the next day in Houston. And um, gave him everything we had. Our bats were really good. You know, if we, we can pitch down the stretch, we can pitch in the postseason, I feel really good about our club. I don't see why we can't, honestly. I think that we've, we've measured ourselves against every team so far this season, and we've played well against everybody. And, and there's a lot of really, really good teams out there. Obviously, postseason, you have to catch some breaks and – you know, we caught breaks in 16. We won the World Series with a lot of breaks we caught and, uh, and still won seven games. So, uh, you know, anything can happen when you get there. I just want us to I want us to get there and want us to finish the season strong before that. Well, the season to date with uh, less than two weeks left, you've done a great job here. I mean, it can't be said enough. You, you mentioned you've lost over 100 games two years ago. And here you are now. Uh, we got a hint of it last year. Uh, you're going to the playoffs for the first time since 2016. You, uh, you're you not going to acknowledge it. I expect you're going to go from second to first in the manager of the year voting this year and well-deserved. We'll, at, we'll wish you a happy early birthday. And thank you for joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, Brandon Hyde. Thank you so much for having me.
We thank Brandon Hyde for joining us, John, and we do what we always do with the close of the show, hit or error this week. I'm going to go with a hit. I'm in a good mood this week. I'm going to say the Dodgers are a hit, uh, winning the division 10 out of 11 years. I know people will complain that they've only won one World Series, and that was in the pandemic year, but an amazing job. They were supposed to take a step back this year, never challenged by San Francisco, San Diego, Arizona, certainly Colorado. 10 out of 11 years, and the one year they didn't win the division, they won 106 games. Pretty good job by the Dodgers. Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier, you know, turning the team over. Corey Seager's an exceptional player. Cody Bellinger's an exceptional player. They moved on and kept moving up. Uh, an and excellent Trey Turner, Turner. Yeah, Trey Turner. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And they lost, right, Lux, their shortstop in spring training. They're, they they are outstanding. Uh, the one I would go with, I wrote about this for uh, Post Plus. I'm going to give a hit to the four durable Mets who kept playing through a bad season you know, uh, Alonzo, Lindor, McNeil, Nimmo, they're all going to play over 150 games this year. The Mets haven't had that since 2008. There's only four other teams this year that have guys who have played 140 plus games. And I'll add one other little thing. That quartet has been hit by pitch 58 times this year. There are 12 teams right now that haven't been hit 58 times. Those four uh, have been done it. Uh, Alonzo is 18. That guy, starting with his car flipping over in spring to now, he has been beat up. And that guy gets on the field over and over again. And in an age of load management, et cetera, I admire guys who get on the field and take away that issue for the manager. The manager of the team, Buck Walter, said two things to me that are interesting. That's the sixth tool. We all know the five tools. The sixth tool is durability, ability to get on the field. And that getting on the field is when people say hey, culture, that's culture because then everyone feels responsible to play through stuff. Right. I mean, Alonzo's indestructible. Well, he was supposed to be out six weeks with a wrist injury. He was out 10 days. You know, you wonder if he was playing a little bit hurt. I, I certainly would think so. I mean, wrist injuries can – look at Mike Trout. You know, he's also supposed to be out six weeks. He's played one game in 11 weeks. And nothing against Mike Trout, but, I mean – Certainly is amazing that Alonzo stays on the field. He is great in the clubhouse. I'll mention that again because I want to counteract that one person who said he wasn't. And he's, you know, that rare 40 home run hitter and the Mets need to sign him up. And I, I don't believe they're blowing off 2024. So uh, that's one more thing I'll say about the Mets. Sign, sign Alonzo. Well, if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, a podcast from the New York Post, I'm sure we'll be talking about Pete Alonzo and the Mets a lot during the offseason. Thank you always to our producers, Jake Brown, Andrew Hart. Don't forget, this show drops on the Yes app about noon every Wednesday. Give it a view. Don't forget uh, to rate, review, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. And thank you, as always, for joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. 